it seemed to me that all of the people killed really on both sides in a war that we were fueling, that meant that all the people killed in that war were killed unjustifiably, unjustified homicide. And to me, that spelled murder. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the publication of the Pentagon Papers, the secret official history of the Vietnam War that was leaked by Daniel Ellsberg. The Pentagon Papers revealed that multiple U.S. presidents and top government officials had been lying about the Vietnam War to the American people and to Congress. The revelations contributed to the war's end. On this week's Vermont Conversation, we mark this anniversary of America's most famous expose by rebroadcasting my 2015 interview with Daniel Ellsberg about war, conscience, and his thoughts on modern-day whistleblowers. Daniel Ellsberg is a former Marine who served in Vietnam and was advisor on the Vietnam War to Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense under President Lyndon Johnson. When the New York Times began publishing the Pentagon Papers, the Nixon administration tried frantically to stop the publication. The Times appealed the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that the newspaper could publish the documents. The revelations about official deception led to a collapse of American support for the war. For leaking the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg was charged with theft, conspiracy, and violations of the Espionage Act, but his case was dismissed as a mistrial when evidence surfaced about the government-ordered wiretappings of his phone and break-ins of his psychiatrist's office. Henry Kissinger referred to Ellsberg as, quote, the most dangerous man in America, close quote. But many view Daniel Ellsberg as a hero who risked his career and even his personal freedom to help expose the deception of his own government in carrying out the Vietnam War. Daniel Ellsberg is now 90 years old, and he remains active in the peace movement. Ellsberg and I spoke in 2015 at a conference in Washington, D.C. about the lessons of the Vietnam War. The conference concluded with a march to the Martin Luther King Memorial. Our conversation took place as Ellsberg and I marched through the busy and breezy streets of D.C., which are the sounds that you hear in the background of our conversation. I began by asking Ellsberg to describe what the Pentagon Papers were. The Pentagon Papers are 7,000 pages, 47 volumes of documents and analysis on history of U.S. decision-making from 1940 in Vietnam, from 1945 to 1968. Now, that title, I think, was not classified, though the documents were all top secret. But the title would have confused most people because they would have said, 45, 1945? What U.S. decision-making was there in 1945 and 1946? Well, I put off reading the earliest volumes that dealt with that period, Till, till the last, till 1969. Uh, they were the last I read. And they were the most startling to me because they confirmed what radicals had been saying for 10 years, but I hadn't believed them, really. What I learned was <laughs> that we had chosen, even under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but more under Truman, to support the French effort to reconquer its former colony in Indochina 
three colonies really, that had declared independence in August of 1945 in September, actually quoting the American Declaration of Independence in the course of uh, proclaiming their own independence and hoping for United States support on that on those grounds. So reading that, I realized that this was not a noble cause, as I'd always been taught and learned even inside the government, that inside the government in these top secret documents, they were well aware that what they were doing was for geopolitical reasons in Europe, actually getting French agreement to U.S. rearmament of Germany, not the noblest cause in the world. In the Cold War, in order to get that, we were supporting their violent return to Indochina. And for an American who thought of himself, like all Americans are taught, that our country was born in the first national liberation struggle against the world's mightiest empire at that time, the British Empire, thought of ourselves as anti-imperialists, to realize that we'd been supporting a, a, a colonial effort to reconquer a colony meant that it was not a just cause even from the beginning. And if it was not a just cause in which I'd been involved from 19, for years actually in one way or another, but very specifically in Vietnam from 65 to 67, then it seemed to me that all of the people killed really on both sides in a war that we were fueling, a war that would not have existed as a war without U.S. financing of it and U.S. direct involvement. That meant that all the people killed in that war were killed unjustifiably, unjustified homicide. And to me, that spelled murder. And so, for the first time, I saw a war that for some years, two years at least, I've been regarding as hopelessly stalemated, a war that we ought to get out of reasonably, gracefully, without losing other objectives, was really something much more serious than just an error or a stalemate. It was a process of murder, and that meant that I couldn't be, not only couldn't be part of it, but that I had to be willing to expose it and to resist it as other young Americans were doing by resisting the draft. And since they were risking prison to do this, that I should be willing to risk or go to prison as expected, uh, like them, to do what I could to bring this war and American involvement in it to an end. What did you think of the Vietnam protesters prior to when you began reading this history? Well, my... <laughs> my first date with my now wife for the last 44 years was actually in April 17, 1965, at a Students for Democratic Society, SDS, rally against the war. And some of the people here today were key in SDS at that time, Tom Hayden, for example, who's still here. Now, I was working in the Pentagon at that time, and I was really quite reluctant to be part of that march. It was my first day off from the Pentagon, and I invited Patricia Marks then to uh, come out, spend the day with me, seeing the cherry blossoms, actually, <clears throat> from bloom just then. And she said, well, I'm going to this march on Saturday against the war. And I said, now, I've been spending 10 months, seven days a week on this war, half days on Sunday. All this time, this is my first day off because... Uh, McNamara is going to the ranch in Texas uh, this weekend, and my boss took the weekend off, too. So you can't ask me to uh, 
spend that day off on an anti-war march. She said, well, that's where I'll be, you know. So I ended up carrying her recorder, uh, your recorder. She was a column, she was a, had a syndicated program on, on uh, public radio then. <clears throat> to the rally, and to answer your question, uh, I had two, re two reactions. One, when we, were, when we were walking around the White House as part of the rally, which, main, which was mainly at the uh, Washington Monument where, uh, where we're marching toward at the moment. I uh, was quite nervous that I'd, my picture would be taken in this in this march, and that would that would simply not be something I could explain in the Pentagon if I turned up on the Washington Post as part of an anti-war march. My my career would have been over at that point. But my picture wasn't taken. Listening to the speakers, which included I.F. Stone and others, and Senator Gruning. I agreed with most of what they were saying, as did most of the people in the Pentagon who were pursuing that war. I didn't know the history. As I said, it took me years, really, to learn that, that they were saying. And it, I could hardly believe it when I said we were violating the Geneva Accords of 1954. And there were not two sovereign states. There was really one Vietnam that had been artificially divided, etc. And the people we were fighting were nationalists. But I already had the opinion from inside the Pentagon that it was a hopeless struggle for us that our anti-nationalist struggle uh, was doomed to be stalemated. And my boss believed that, and most of the people I worked with believed that. So we didn't really disagree with the protest, but our bosses, Lyndon Johnson and McNamara, wanted the involvement. We worked for them, so we did our jobs, and uh, not, not to our credit in retrospect. So then I went back to the Pentagon that night. I, uh, I accompanied her on the agreement that we could spend the next day, Sunday, looking at the cherry blossoms. And that's where our, our love blossomed. But uh, that was long ago, almost 50 years ago. 50, in fact, it was 50 years ago, this, this month. <laughs> so Last month, April. <laughs> take me to the nights that you're copying with your children present. Your children were helping you copy? That's right. Uh, that was because, not because I needed their help, but because I knew that I would, I felt I would shortly be in prison at that time, and that I would henceforth see my children for the rest of my life. I expected to be in prison for the rest of my life for copying and disclosing 7,000 top secret pages. I didn't think the sentence would be liked for that. And in fact, ultimately, I was charged with 12 felony counts of possible 115 years in prison, which would have been most of my life. And um, I did think that I would only be talking to them through thick glass from then on, in uh, a, a telephone, in a visitor's booth. And I knew that they would hear things that I, and I was right, that all whistleblowers face, uh, especially the national security apparatus, that I'd gone crazy, that I was a flake, uh, had some kind of a breakdown, or uh, that I was a traitor. And all those things were thrown at me. And I wanted them to see that I was doing this in a business-like way as something that I felt needed to be done, calmly, efficiently. And I also wanted them to leave them with a legacy, uh, 
especially my daughter, I thought was too young fully to understand it at the time. She was 10 years old, and my son was 13. I felt he did understand it pretty well. I got him to read Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience at that time, and he, uh, he was anxious to join me in this. I wanted to leave them with the thought that the day might come <coughs> when they had to risk prison or go to prison to do the right thing and to tell the truth. So I thought that was that was something I could leave them. So I, I, I brought my son in first uh, to help me a couple nights to see that we were doing this as I said, I hadn't gone crazy. I was just doing what I thought I needed to do. And then one night I had to send stuff in. I had taken the kids out to some dinner or something and realized I had to send some more material to Fulbright. And so I didn't want to involve Mary in it. She was only 10. And <clears throat> I knew her mother would be very upset if, if I involved her, as she was in the end. Uh, so I was going to leave her in the car. But she hollered, no, 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 you can't. No, I'm not going to stay here. So we took her upstairs and we said, OK, Mary, you sit on the sofa there while we do this work. But she got very fidgety and impatient, so she wanted something to do. So I gave her something to do. Now, something I didn't mention, though, is that, that was one of the two nights when policemen knocked on the door as uh, I was copying the papers on a Xerox machine next to the door. I looked up, and here were these two policemen. I covered up uh, top secret documents and so forth before I opened the door from the Xerox machine. Knowing, I think this was the second time it happened, so I knew what was happening. The woman, Linda Resnick, uh, then Linda Sine, whose office this was, uh, had a habit of turning the key the wrong way and tripping the alarm when she came into her office. So the police had actually been there many times during the summer. In fact, they said, Linda, you've done it again. So, so they came into a room where I was, had been copying the Pentagon Papers, my son was collating copies of them, and uh, who was thir 13 then, and Mary, as I said, was 10, was on the floor cutting top secret off the top and bottom of the pages with the scissors. And that was her important contribution, actually. So the prospect, why would somebody of your background have thought it worth going to prison for life, never seeing your children again? Why not leave that to the people who are already protesting? Well, <clears throat> two things. Uh, one thing, actually, that seemed very, very natural to me and seemingly wasn't to other my colleagues, and that was I had been involved in the war at a time when I believed in it or even later when I didn't believe in it, but it was the job and McNamara believed in it and I was working for him. So I'd been involved in it for years. My first visit was in 61 as a consultant. Then 64, 65 in the Pentagon, 65 to 67 in the uh, State Department in Vietnam. So I felt as somebody who had been involved in this catastrophe, this, this moral disaster and social and national disaster, it was now, my, now that I knew how bad it was, it was surely my obligation to do what I could for the rest of my life, if necessary, to get us out of it. And that seemed very obvious reasoning to me. I, I really was puzzled later and struck that none of my colleagues, nearly all of whom had the same attitudes about the war, how disastrous it had been, hopeless, should get out of it. They didn't seem to have that feeling that it was their duty at all, having been involved, um, to do anything special and to join the movement and to try to get us out. 
in effect, they saw no accountability to themselves. They were doing a job. I knew that feeling. Uh, but they were just doing a job, working for somebody else, doing what they had promised to do, obey orders, keep secrets, as I had done up till then, and uh, felt no need even to devote themselves to anti-war activity of any kind. That was true, for example, of McNamara himself, who I think felt that the response, he was, he was very sad that the war had developed the way it had, and even that we'd gotten into it ultimately. And yet, I don't think he felt any personal guilt or responsibility. He thought it was the president's. We had one president at a time, and it was the president it was responsible. It was just too bad. And uh, so I, I see, feel a great identity with Chelsea Manning and with Edward Snowden in our reactions to a situation like this. <clears throat> So each, of us, each of us have said, I mean, they've said, this had to be done, whatever they did, which in fact in each case was doing what I did, exposing a lot of wrongfully held secrets. We said somebody had to do it, and nobody else was going to do it. So I guess it has to be me. And it seems in, to us a very natural reaction and logical, but it seems to be very unusual to feel if nobody else is going to do this and it has to be done, I have to do it. And that's something that I would like to see a lot more people uh, come to take on as their ethical framework. You met Edward Snowden. In Russia, yeah. What did you tell him? Well, we'd already communicated by encrypted chat logs, and I'd had the opportunity to tell him as, that he'd heard me say publicly already that he was a great hero of mine, uh, that I thought he was a really outstanding patriot, and that... Uh, I felt he'd done absolutely the right thing in really everything he did. Some of his tactical judgments turned out not to be uh, wonderful. He probably shouldn't have gone to Hong Kong to make the revelation. Uh, it wasn't his fault he got caught in Russia with his passport revoked so that he couldn't get out of there, and that's where he is now. Would have been better, I suppose, if he'd, if he'd made more of an effort to go to Latin America or somewhere else in Europe right from the beginning. But other than that choice, which he had reasons for doing, but they just didn't work out wonderfully. Uh, on the other hand, it could have been a lot worse. If he had stayed in this country, he could not have been telling the journalists to whom he gave the material how to understand it, what to look for, what the acronyms meant, what the code words meant. He's been doing that now for two years. Uh, what is it now? Uh, yeah, two years. And he couldn't have done that if he'd stayed in this country. He would have been in an isolation cell like Chelsea Manning who was in a isolation for ten and a half months, he would be in an isolation cell, I believe, for the rest of his life if he came here. So, so he, did, he did just what he needed to do with it. Why would he be in an isolation cell? <coughs> ah, because they would fear, and not just pretend to fear in his case, that he had many more secrets, as he does, that he could tell if he wanted to, which he doesn't, but they don't trust that. Uh, he, he has tremendously more information then he revealed, but he felt it was material that the the uh, public didn't need to know. Some of it was legitimate secrets, and he withheld it. Uh, they would fear that he would somehow, in revenge or vindictiveness or whatever uh, mood, would, or just carelessly, which is very unlike him, reveal that to other prisoners, and uh, they would want him incommunicado, as Chelsea was for no good reason. I think the, they didn't believe that Chelsea had other secrets uh, to put out, but I think they were pressing her, uh, in effect torturing her, 
to try to give false evidence against Julian Assange and help them prosecute Julian Assange. But public protest on that point, after ten and a half months, did get her into a general prison population, uh, and uh, uh, which is very much more healthy for her, and that's where she's been since. It was the same with Venunu, Mordecai Venunu in Israel. They kept him in of his 18-year sentence. He spent ten and a half years in a small isolation cell, and with the same excuse that he had secrets he could have given to other prisoners. And those were that he worked in the nuclear plant in Israel. And in Mordecai Venunu revealed the not just merely the existence of a nuclear program at Dimona, where he worked in Israel, which Israel had denied, still in effect denies, uh, and which the, the, the government knew very well. But what he revealed with photographs was that the scale of that was very much larger than even the CIA knew, uh, thanks to Israeli deception by Mossad, and that they uh, were testing nuclear, that they had rather designs and were working on thermonuclear weapons, H-bombs, which again I think the CIA did not know for sure. And of course that was all almost 30 years, let's see, 1985 or so, <coughs> 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And the charge against Edward Snowden that would require that he be held incommunicado? Well, the charge would not require, that would be an administrative decision, I believe. And he, he was... He was very aware of what happened to Chelsea Manning, and he wanted to avoid that. But that's one thing. Uh, that's actually not the main problem with his staying in this country. Uh, as two things there. Hillary Clinton uh, said, and her successor as Secretary of State John Kerry also said, <clears throat> uh, he should come back to this country like a man, as Kerry put it, despicably, in my opinion. Um, and make his case to the public and in court. He could do neither of those, and that's not because of the uh, incommunicado part uh, in principle. Chelsea Manning has never been interviewed in five years since she was arrested by a reporter once. No interview has, interviewer has been allowed to her, and that's as true when she's in the general population as when she was in isolation. So he would have had no chance to speak to the public. He would be arrested whether or not he was put in isolation. Second, um, the idea of his telling his case in court ignores the fact, which the government, many people in the government do know very well, that under the Espionage Act that he'd be charged with, as I was, you don't have a chance to make your case. Uh, you're not able to answer in court. You're not able to answer the question that I was asked why did you copy the Pentagon Papers? My defense lawyer asked that and met an immediate objection, irrelevant. And after trying to get that question through a number of times, different ways, different wording, my lawyer, Leonard Boudin, says, Your Honor, I've never heard of a criminal case where the defendant was not allowed to state to the jury why he did what he did. And the judge said, You're hearing one now. And that's what happened. I was not able to answer that question, nor have any of the people, the ten people, uh, exclude, well, nine plus Petraeus, who was originally going to be charged with Espionage Act, but then it was lowered to a misdemeanor. But the others, nine, not one of them has been able to tell the jury uh, why he did what he did, whatever it was, if he admitted to. And thus, it's not. A, there's no way that a whistleblower can get a just trial 
in this, at my time or any time since, under Espionage Act charges. Uh, it's not a fair trial. You're not able to make your case. And I asked Snowden in Russia, Ed, do you think that Clinton and Kerry believe what they're saying? He said, no, no, no way. They're lawyers. But I'm not sure he's right on that. There have been so few cases until Obama that lawyers in general don't know much about the law, and they haven't seen the Espionage Act used this way. It has been used many times against spies who don't have a good story to tell the jury about their motive. Right? So the act was written that did not permit them to do that. But for whistleblowers who are giving this information for what they think is a compelling public need to know, and that it's been wrongfully withheld from the public, uh, it's crucial to have what's called a whistleblower defense or a public interest defense or a public accountability defense in terms of the officials you're exposing. And that's been proposed by Professor Yohai Benkler at Harvard Law School, but uh, Congress hasn't yet passed such legislation and isn't likely to. So what I'm saying is the Espionage Act constitutionally and fairly and justly should only be used against spies, which was its original intent, should not be used against whistleblowers. But it is. And therefore, uh, uh, man, and therefore Snowden was exactly right in staying out of the country. The people marching today, I think, don't generally realize it, even now, even 40 years later, what their major effect was. And that major effect was to keep the war from getting much, much larger and more violent, even than it ever did. The Joint Chiefs, from beginning to end, were pressing for a very much larger prosecution of the war, from 500,000 to a million American troops, bombing of all the targets in North Vietnam, possible use of nuclear weapons if the Chinese came in. And they were recommending actions that they themselves admitted had a high chance of bringing the Chinese in. So <clears throat> I had discovered, or rather I'd been told by Mort Helper, in fact, who worked for Kissinger, that the President Nixon was making threats of escalation, which included explicitly nuclear weapons against North Vietnam and making those threats through the Russians and to some extent the Chinese and directly to the North Vietnamese. I didn't have documents to prove that, <clears throat> but they didn't know that I didn't. Uh, people who did know those documents, like Roger Morris, who'd seen the targets for nuclear weapons one of them a mile and a half from the Chinese border. In October of 1969, they were scheduled for November 3rd, 1969. And... Um, a uh, nuclear strike that nuclear, was already scheduled. A nu no, not as a definite thing. It was all planned, all prepared for, target picked out. In fact, a, a, a folder that implied there would be about six civilian casualties because it would be a small yield airburst uh, deep in the jungle near the Chinese border, no civilians around, supposedly, to send a very strong message to the Chinese and uh, the North Vietnamese, etc. Also, mining of Haiphong, which actually took place years later, and possible invasions of Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. They were moving toward all of these, and people, there were people in the government who expected this all to be carried out. And I believe, by the way, that two of those were Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, who'd been pressing very heavily for this operation. What kept it from happening, actually, in October, was that two million people marched like this, but not on a Saturday, where most marches take place to swell the numbers. They did it on a weekday, which meant people took off from work, and they took off from uh, school, 
uh, and spent the afternoon hearing speeches or doing various things, lobbying in some cases. In short, it had the character of a general strike across the country. And in some cities there was 10,000, in a couple of cities there was 100,000, in like San Francisco or New York. In many cities, 100 or 50. And by doing it all at the same day, at the same time, they were, they were counted cumulatively. So you had two million people altogether. Nixon says in his memoir, when I saw the turnout for this, this is in his memoir, our Nixon, I knew that my ultimatum to the North had failed. This was October 15th. His ultimatum was for November. In November what year? 1st, 1969. So the people like this, and I asked today how many had been in that march, and quite a few were, uh, which didn't surprise me in this case. But uh, I said you were stopping, you were, you were extending the moratorium on nuclear warfare for another 40 years so far. You were stopping nuclear war. And even if he hadn't in the end chosen nuclear war, the mining of Haiphong against Russian ships, uh, the escalation in the North Vietnam would very likely have brought in the Chinese uh, ultimately. And we could very well have used, we would, we planned if the Chinese came in uh, contingently here that we would use nuclear weapons. So Nixon knew that I had documents from his national security uh, office that uh, <coughs> on Vietnam, top secret documents, as I did. He didn't know what they were uh, because I had given them some of them to Senator Mathias, a Republican from Maryland, who wanted to be the Republican who helped end the war. But he had panicked when the Pentagon Papers came out and I became public enemy number one. And he called up the Attorney General, John Mitchell, and said, John, there's something you ought to know. And he told him about the top secret documents I had given him from the National Security Council. But he didn't tell them what they were. And that was crucial to the way things turned out. They could have been anything. They were somewhat incriminating. They talked about mining of Haiphong, for example. They didn't prove or demonstrate the nuclear part. But Nixon had every reason to, to fear that I did have documents, and he didn't know what they were. They would prove these extreme threats. So he had to shut me up. Now, all this is separate from the Pentagon Papers trial, which was going on, and which I was facing 115 years later. Uh, at the first, I didn't face as many charges, and they expanded them. Uh, but had I only copied the Pentagon Papers, Nixon would have stayed in office, and the war would have continued for another couple of years. Had I not copied National Security Study Memorandum 1 from Kissinger's office and other Kissinger documents, they wouldn't have had, re and given some of them to Matthias, they wouldn't have had reason to fear that I had information on Nixon. The Pentagon Papers themselves ended in 68 uh, with the Democrats. And Nixon was actually happy to have those out. It incriminated the Democrats. And uh, he didn't like the example of somebody revealing those truths, but he liked the truths being out on the Democrats. So he wanted to put me on trial. But then when he learned that, in fact, I had other documents that I could put out, uh, it was almost too late at that point to get me into jail, so I couldn't do it. And he, that wouldn't have helped anyway, because I had it arranged for those to be delivered, whether I was in jail or not. And uh, so they had to shut me up other ways. He took then a series of crimes under the so-called White House plumbers, their job was supposedly stopping leaks. And specifically, they were worried about leaks for me against Nixon's secret policy on the war. 
which unfortunately I really only had oral testimony on. I didn't have documents. The way to do that then was to go and send these people into my former psychoanalyst's office in order to get information that I didn't want known to the public, that I might have told my psychoanalyst. Uh, dirty dreams, or that's about all there was actually to tell. But I uh, could have been, they would have, in those days they would have liked homosexuality. That wouldn't be enough today. Probably would have to be child abuse or something. But they wanted something that uh, they could blackmail me with and say, if you don't shut up, if you were to put this information out, your reputation will be ruined. They didn't find what they needed. It wasn't there. It hadn't happened. Then they were uh, overhearing me on warrantless wiretaps of Mort Halpern, Kissinger's own assistant. Uh, he was. They were wiretapping several members of the National Security Council to see if they were leaking, and a number of um, reporters at the time, Joe Kraft and uh, I believe Hedrick Smith and some others. And uh, so that was all illegal at that point. They set the CIA to do a domestic a profile, a psychological profile of me, which was against the CIA charter to operate against an American citizen. They'd done profiles like that against Russian leaders, against uh, Sukarno in Indonesia, against Castro, but not against an American, which was illegal. Then, uh, and uh, the idea of that was to, to find information that they could manipulate me with, you know, see what my vulnerabilities were. Uh, if they could have tortured me at that time, that would have been good. They would have done it. But I wasn't in custody. Unlike Snowden or Manning, uh, I was out on bail and could speak freely, do all this. So how to stop me? And finally, they brought 12 CIA assets from the Bay of Pigs uh, up from Miami with orders to incapacitate Ellsberg totally. On this, it so happened at a rally on the steps of the Capitol on May 3rd, 1973, uh, 72, I'm sorry. And who's, on whose orders? <clears throat> that was on White House, the Oval Office. So these orders, which through, uh, through Ehrlichman to Hunt and Liddy, who were working in what was then called beautifully Creep, Committee to Reelect the President. But this was part of their earlier plumbers operation. So, uh, <clears throat> These people came up to incapacitate me. They threw it because they believed they were being set up, as one of them put it, like Oswald, whatever that meant, uh, to uh, be caught uh, for having incapacitated me. So they blew the operation, and that night they were taken to reconnoiter their next target, which was the Watergate. And when they were caught in the Watergate, they now had earlier crimes to admit, and they had to be bribed into secrecy and, and perjury in front of the grand jury uh, to keep from revealing these Oval Office crimes. Now, Nixon was never actually proven to have known in advance about many of the aspects of Watergate, breaking into the Watergate, the dirty tricks, campaign contributions. He undoubtedly was involved, but his attorney general never talked, never talked on it, and others who knew. what he was implicated in were the crimes against me. They were ordered from the Oval Office by him, and these people could talk. So they had to be bribed into not talking, and that was another crime, an obstruction of justice. And when the whole tissue of lies began to unravel, as Dean was plea bargaining, John Dean, the counsel to the president, to avoid being blamed for the whole cover-up personally, he told them about the break into the doctor's office, about the attempt to incapacitate me, and other things. Ultimately, in my trial, the warrantless wiretapping came out, which was criminal, which wouldn't have happened 
if my trial had ended earlier. But because it was still going, they were under an obligation to tell me this stuff. Now, that didn't automatically mean Nixon would leave office. The tapes had to be revealed by Alex Butterfield, showing that Dean was telling the truth. Uh, Alexander Cox had to refuse the president's order to uh, uh, abandon the effort to get the tapes. Elliot Richardson had to resign rather than fire Cox, etc., etc. So a lot of people had to act in unusual ways at risk to their own career, like me earlier. But I was one link in a chain that was necessary. Without any one of those links, Nixon would have stayed in office. And as I say again, if I had copied only the Pentagon Papers dealing with the Democrats and before, Nixon would have had no need to uh, commit those crimes to keep me from talking. And he would have stayed in office and he would have continued the war for at least a couple of years with bombing. So you, it does show that uh, truth-telling can be effective. Did you ever find out how they were going to incapacitate yeah. you totally? Well, actually, they had been told falsely, a cover story, that I was interrupting a set of mourners for Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, who had just died the day before, and who was lying in state in the Capitol. And they were told that they were to protect Hoover's catafalque from me and my followers, which was a fairly absurd cover story. After all, he was very adequately protected by uh, park police and secret service and his body. And we were on the other side of the Capitol in our rally. So these people, who were not stupid, uh, noticed that the cover story was false. And they got a feeling, uh, in particular, their idea was that if I were really infiltrating Hoover mourners, all they would have to do is start beating on me, and the crowd would cooperate and beat and tear me to pieces. You know, as a bad guy. They were calling me traitor, traidor, traidor in their Spanish, and I have that on tape. But uh, then they noticed that when they called traidor, these people didn't seem to like it. They obviously were not Hoover mourners. So uh, they said, there's something fishy here. I don't like the smell of it, they said in Spanish, to Bernard Macho Barker, who was later caught in the Watergate. And uh, so they actually instead got into fights on the edge of the, of the crowd so as to be arrested or, or detained by park police. And then Hunt and Liddy came up showing expired FBI and CIA credentials and saying, these are good Americans, we'll take charge of them from now on. And then they went and reconnoitered the Watergate afterwards. So we are here at a conference on the lessons of Vietnam. And for particularly a current generation for whom Vietnam is, is history, what would you say the lessons for, of Vietnam are for today? Well, <clears throat> imperial or neo-colonial wars against a nationalist movement that uses guerrilla tactics are extremely unpromising and uh, not only illegitimate and illegal and murderous, but they are also doomed to stalemate as the Vietnamese found themselves when they went into Cambodia, the Chinese found when they went into Vietnam, the Russians found when they went into Afghanistan. Uh, one lesson that even the Pentagon has drawn to a large extent is these wars are essentially likely to be unwinnable and murderous to no legitimate, actually to no effect at all. But that's not the only lesson. Uh, another lesson is that the America is capable of doing a totally illegitimate, unwinnable war. That we are not, uh, we're exceptional in a number of ways, but not 
we're not an exceptional empire. We are an empire. We're not the worst. We're not the best, if comparisons are to be made. But we do the things that all empires do, and that is um, murder, assassinate, hire proxy armies to uh, overthrow governments when, when, when needed, torture in particular. All empires torture. Socialist, capitalist, fascist, colonial, neo-colonial, because they're trying to rule people who, without their consent, against their rule. And in the course of that, um, uh, they torture people. And we turn out not to be exceptional in that case, which is a very strong reason, not merely to regard getting into these wars as unwise, but as moral disasters and uh, totally corrosive and erosive to our democracy. Another lesson is that the founders of our Constitution had it right when they said in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution that Congress should have the uh, decision as to whether to go to war. They put it to declare war, but that really meant whether we went to war at all, as opposed to a short reaction to an attack on our own forces, which the executive can do. But when it comes to initiating a war, it should be Congress, not because they are angels or always right, but because there are a lot of them, they represent a lot of different interests, and they are less likely to get us into a wrongful, unnecessary war than one man who feels he's responsible for losing a colony or a, uh, a part of the world that we've controlled and uh, willing to do anything to keep us uh, keep, keep that under our control, to own it in effect. That's, those are among the lessons. The, uh, unfortunately, Congress learned that lesson briefly. They passed the War Powers Act, but every, uh, as a result, really, of, of some of these things, including the Pentagon Papers. But every president since then has found it necessary, has found it able to ignore that to some degree. And the present one, Obama, simply dispensed with the War Powers Act altogether in Article Section 1, Article 1, Section 8, going to war in Libya, for example, without even any consultation with Congress, whatever. Uh, likewise, I'd say going back into Iraq, uh, having drawn the troops out, has been done without any consultation. The perfectly spurious uh, claim that uh, uh, something passed 14 years ago after 9-11 gives them the authority to do that, which is basically absurd legally. On Libya, by the way, he hired a good civil libertarian, Harold Cole, from Dean of a Law School, who, as soon as he got working for the president, was willing to say, Libya is not a war that requires him to consult Congress. No Americans are at risk. Uh, they are merely flying planes and sending drones. No American casualties. So no matter how many casualties we're causing, it's not a war that requires consultation. This is a despicable uh, turncoatism, you might say, of somebody, a really dramatic example of how working for the president uh, changes your ethical and legal sense uh, from one night to the next. You have seen the best of America and the worst of America. What gives you hope? We're in a period right now which is strikingly like uh, the period either in 1961 in Iraq now, where John F. Kennedy, who did not want to send combat troops into Vietnam, but did send advisors who got you know more and more involved and, and more and more of a commitment. Barack Obama, I think, just like Kennedy, does not want to send combat units to Iraq, but he's doing it. 
and he's calling them advisors and trainers and communications people. I think we have every reason to fear that the same process of escalation will go on as happened under Kennedy and Johnson. He is resisting, uh, reluctantly I'd say, uh, getting involved directly in the Ukraine or in Iran or Syria, and I support that. But I'm not confident that he will uh, forever resist the pressures to do that by people who are recklessly and stupidly, uh, with no sense of the past or of realities here, are urging him to go to war in Syria, uh, as he is in Afghanistan and Iraq, Somalia, Sudan, but especially uh, uh, Iran, and above all, Ukraine, where we will be confronting Russian troops potentially for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's a very dangerous time, and I cannot say that either our officials, unless it's maybe Barack Obama himself, but the, the military and people in the uh, writing editorials, people on the media, they show no awareness of how dangerous their pressures to get into these wars are. I'll give an example. We okay. couldn't have a more, uh, uh, an enemy more worthy of being demonized, let's say, than ISIL or ISIS. And yet, would we be well advised to, to do the bombing we are now doing of them or to send troops against them? I think absolutely not. You could call that a just cause, uh, as it will be, but in terms of its prospects, we would be swelling their ranks in that I think is exactly as, as a nationalist struggle against an empire against a foreign country that's invading them. And uh, I think that our bombing raids right now, our intelligence has been saying, has swelled the ranks of ISIS. So that I would say that a policy that strengthens ISIS, namely U.S. military intervention, is not a good policy. It is to be avoided. The same is true in Syria, where there's 10 different people fighting for, uh, for control and power. Uh, our involvement in that, I think, could have no good end, no good purpose for anyone. Iran, a terrible situation uh, if we were to attack them, as Prime Minister Netanyahu, I would say, blatantly wants us to do. And Congress is, uh, is cravenly and corruptly uh, following that call, I think, even against the President. So it's dangerous times, and it, it's a very good time to be hearing uh, memories of Vietnam, because that's exactly and, uh, what we're heading toward, and worse, because an at attack that gets us into the Ukraine against Russians would be far worse than Vietnam. My question originally was, what gives you hope? So let's circle back to that. Well, the Americans who are here today, who have been at it for 50 years, in many cases longer than I was. Uh, it took me a while to see the light, and I was on the wrong side of this issue. Uh, as I've said, we weren't on the wrong side in Vietnam. We were the wrong side in Vietnam, which is not to say that the NLF or the, the Viet Cong or the DRV were angels or were going to bring about a democratic society. They did not. Or a, um, uh, were nonviolent. They certainly were not. But... They were Vietnamese fighting for independence from foreign rule, and that brought people to their ranks. And it meant that no matter how many we killed, more they grew in strength, as ISIS is going today under American bombing. That's the lesson we should have learned. Uh, to be an anti-nationalist invader, uh, for whatever you tell yourselves your motives are, 
is a losing game. And by the way, it deserves to lose. So uh, that's what we should learn. What gives me hope is that there are Americans who do remember this. Uh, to be sure, a lot of them are not as old as I am, 84, but uh, they've been at it for a long time and they're still at it because, as I say, they're still at it in the government. What are you proudest of? Well, I've told my wife long ago that on my gravestone I would like just this. He was a member of the anti-nuclear and the anti-Vietnam protest movements. That's what I would like. Thank you. That was Daniel Ellsberg, the whistleblower who released the Pentagon Papers, which were published 50 years ago this week and helped lead to the end of the Vietnam War. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.